When I grew up, the Middle Ages were called the Dark Ages, indicating how dark and uneducated everyone in Europe was, in contrast with the Enlightenment, when reason brought a light with which to see the truth. As reason liberated Europe, it also brought entrepreneurial and technological innovation. The truth is that, although the mode and relations of production were grim in the Middle Ages, there were technological and intellectual innovations. Most intellectuals existed within the church, and their intellectual discoveries typically reinforced the existing power structure. Throughout the Middle Ages, when the primary mode of production was feudalist, there was an inconsequential number of capitalists throughout Europe, especially in port cities. We recently spent five episodes discussing the Enlightenment and a moment when a new kind of intellectual was born, an intellectual of the coffee houses and the salons, intellectuals with access to encyclopedias and newspapers. These intellectuals were members of a growing middle class, a growing class of capitalists, professionals, doctors, and lawyers. While the ruling class, the aristocracy, and the aristocratic intelligentsia, the church, fought to retain power, the reality was that the capitalist mode of production had been growing for a few centuries, and the capitalist intelligentsia was in the middle of a powerful movement of ideas, the Enlightenment. By the time of the French Revolution, the aristocracy was no longer in a position physically or intellectually to defend its hegemony, its role as the ruling class. By the time the French Revolution occurred, everything was in place. Factories were being built throughout Western Europe. Banks were popping up everywhere, ready to invest in promising entrepreneurs. Newspapers and book publishers were increasing production. The capitalists just had to take power in order to unchain their productive potential. Similar, though less explicitly symbolic, sea changes were occurring in England and the United States at the end of the 18th century. Those who study the history of economics tie an explosion of productivity to this transition of hegemony to the capitalist class, especially in England. This podcast exists to strategize how the working class could replace the capitalist class as the hegemonic class. If we are to replicate this strategy, we would need a socialist mode of production in place and in operation and a working class intelligentsia spreading a vision of a better world. As the working class takes control of the levers of power of the government, it will need to scale up a socialist mode of production a mode of production that aligns with the grand vision of socialism, a mode of production of which Gramsci believes has the potential for being more productive than capitalism. We'll discuss some alternatives towards the end, but on October 30, 1916, Gramsci published an article on the Italian cooperative movement called Socialism and Cooperation, in which he proposed cooperatives as a prototype of what a socialist mode of production would look like. This may cause a lot of people to skip this episode, but I'm really excited about this one because we're going to be doing a survey of socialist economics in it. I grew up hearing that socialism was disproven by the field of economics. It turns out that the field of economics is one more component of the dominant hegemony. 
I'll put into the show notes a great episode of a podcast on the conservative intellectual movement called Know Your Enemy. In it, they discuss how neoliberalism became the dominant ideology in the field of economics. When I realized a pragmatic case could be made for a socialist economics, an economics that can address many of the problems we are facing today due to neoliberalism, I became a bit obsessed with learning the basics of economics. In spite of the neoliberal propaganda, socialism is not utopian, ungrounded from the reality of human nature. It is neoliberal economics that is utopian, grounded on thought experiments in spite of the empirical evidence. In fact, there are little to no studies proving the claim that private organizations are more efficient than government. Yet, neoliberalism has persuaded most of us to operate as though this claim were the undisputed truth. But I'll try to keep myself reined in. For those excited to learn about socialist economics, I will cover a number of elements of what a socialist economy could look like. The Working Class Intelligentsia, a podcast for working class intellectuals about Antonio Gramsci. Start from episode one or jump around to whatever episode looks interesting. The Italian Cooperative Movement If you're not familiar with what cooperatives are, they're organizations that don't follow the traditional capitalist or Wall Street model of ownership. Traditionally, an individual or family owns a business and are responsible for making high-level decisions about the strategic direction of the organization. The Wall Street corporate model moved ownership away from individuals towards investors that may or may not know anything about the organization or the industry, leaving strategic direction to be driven by a tiny group of executives and members of the board. Theoretically, as an organization becomes more profitable, earning greater returns for its stockholders, its stock prices go up. Both of these models result in empowering a minority class of people. This minority class tends to maximize the organization's profits, whether or not their employees or society at large are harmed by them. Cooperatives are organizations owned either by their employees or by their customers, or some combination of the two. This ownership model improves the chances that the organization will have greater social benefit. Consumer co-ops are accountable to their customers. Worker co-ops can be structured in such a way that they are democratically run by their employees, though it is still possible for an organization to have a traditional hierarchical management structure while being owned by the employees. Note that unless laws are in place to give them preference in one form or another, under capitalism, cooperatives still must compete on the free market, but even when they compete on the free market, they potentially counteract the centralization of wealth into the hands of a few. While capitalism extracts the wages from the workers, giving said wages to the capitalists, worker co-ops allow workers to pocket the profits from their labor. 
And although consumer co-ops still extract wages from the workers, their wages are disseminated throughout the community rather than into the hands of a few. The Italian cooperative movement began in 1854 in Turin, Gramsci's home in 1916. The working class formed consumer co-ops in order to mitigate the rising costs of living in the city. Some of these co-ops still exist to this day. Over the next few decades, farmers and small business owners struggled to get access to credit, so they formed cooperative banks. Towards the end of the 1800s, farmers formed consumer co-ops in order to combat monopolies that were driving small farmers out of business and raising the costs of food and farm supplies. At the same time, construction workers and farm workers started forming worker co-ops. Today, Italy has the highest concentration of cooperatives and is growing, especially in the Emilia-Romana region, not far from Turin. Two-thirds of the region's 4.5 million people are members of co-ops. Co-ops generate 30% of the region's GDP. In 2009, there were 7,500 co-ops accounting for 10% of the region's employment. Two-thirds of the co-ops are worker-owned. Even in 1910, throughout Italy, there were over a million members of co-ops with 7,400 co-ops, which was up to 15,000 in 1921, though the movement suffered as fascism influence grew. Remember, Gramsci's article was written in 1916, so this was during a high point of the cooperative movement in Italy. One particular kind of co-op has exploded in popularity recently, called social co-ops or social solidarity co-ops. Social co-ops are owned by both the workers and the customers. Social co-ops perform social services such as caretaking, services that the free market often fails to adequately or affordably offer. The existence of these co-ops has resulted in lower unemployment in the areas of higher concentrations of people. They flourished during a weak economy in the 1980s, brought diversity into the workforce, including people with disabilities. They gave their employees higher wages than they would have gotten in their absence, including for marginalized workers. Some sources say social co-ops provide higher quality social services than government, The one must account for the fact that government social services are often underfunded under capitalism. As I have said about so many subjects, I am not an expert. My understanding is that there are a number of factors behind Italy's flourishing cooperative movement, though a conducive legal framework is vital. In 1881, co-ops became recognized as organizations. In recent history, a turning point occurred in the late 80s. In 1980, caregiving worker co-ops evolved into social co-ops. Their popularity resulted in an explosion of co-ops. In 1985, there were 650 social co-ops in Italy. In 1990, there were 1,800. In 1991, they were recognized by the law. In 1995, there were 2,800. One law of particular note 
Every co-op in Italy contributes 3% of its annual surplus to a fund for cooperative development. Even better would be a law that requires all organizations to contribute 3% of their annual surplus to the cooperative development fund. Why should this be limited just to cooperatives? Okay, it's time to talk about something else for a moment, and then we'll get to Gramsci's article. But before we do, Gramsci makes a remark about capitalism in this article, something that is quite mysterious, unless you're familiar with Karl Marx's concept of the base and superstructure. I'm going to read a quote from Gramsci. Besides, capitalism is not, in its historical essence, a bourgeois phenomenon. Rather, it is a bourgeois superstructure, the concrete form taken by economic development at some time after the class's rise to political power, resulting from its struggle to establish its roots ever more firmly in the world. And just as it was the economic nuclei which had emerged before 1789, already potentially capitalistic, but suffocated by the remains of feudalism, which made the first breaches in the feudal system. So, equally, the economic nuclei created and nurtured by the proletariat for its own class ends, within the very heart of bourgeois society, may become a powerful lever for breaking that society apart. So Gramsci is building on Marx's concept of base and superstructure, concepts that Marx never worked out in detail, though his successors did. To this day, there is much debate about how accurate this description of the world is. Personally, I think it is a helpful way of analyzing the world, even if it cannot explain everything. The idea is that there is a distinction to be made between the relationships between people as they produce society's goods and services and the ideology of society. The base is where we see some people pay people to work in their factories in order to produce textiles. The superstructure is the religion and the political beliefs that humans came up with in order to legitimize or undermine this base structure. So capitalism is not the base. Economics happens, and then we attempt to make sense out of the world, content ourselves with our place in the world, by constructing ideologies that make the economic reality bearable. According to Marx, the ruling class typically has a disproportionate influence on what this ideology is, this superstructure. Through the Middle Ages, most people were essentially owned by their lords. Most of the time, one's labor provided food for oneself and one's family, as long as the lord's share was satisfied. These lord-peasant relationships and the feudal mode of production were the base the religious and cultural beliefs that the peasants held that kept them from questioning this as the natural order is a superstructure. But another key feature of the concept of base and superstructure is the ways in which they affect each other. Not only does the base play a causative role in determining the superstructure, but the superstructure also sculpts and shapes the base. We see this in the example of the French Revolution. 
the Enlightenment was a movement primarily of the urban middle class that questioned the feudal base structure, the feudal mode of production. They said it was unjust, irrational, and incapable of producing what new modes of production could at scale. As the economy shifted and the factories expanded across the continent, increasing in size and density in urban areas, and as technology transformed agriculture, the Enlightenment spread with greater rapidity, just as the Enlightenment's new ways of thinking sculpted the base mode of production and the relationships of the people in the act of production. Eventually, the growing bourgeois class won the battle of ideas, and their ideas began to butt heads with the base still in place, the feudal relations still in place which is to say, the superstructure transformed the base. Prior to 1789, capitalism was constrained by the power and authority of the aristocracy and the church. After 1789, capitalism broke free from these old chains. Once the capitalist regime took power, capitalist productivity was able to take off, because the base of capitalist ideology, banks, factories, and agricultural technology was in place, ready to scale up. When the capitalists took power, these base realities gave them the legitimacy to stay in power. They allowed them to deliver on the promise of the Enlightenment. Through the many revolutions and uprisings in France during the next century, and then in Russia in the 20th century, reveal that their fulfillment of the Enlightenment was inadequate, as we've already discussed. The question is if co-ops could play a similar role for the working class. Gramsci, in his article, calls out the fact that the distinctive elements of capitalism is how the ownership of production divides society into two classes, the capitalist owners versus the workers. The co-ops undermine this. Often members of the proletariat are the owners of co-ops, especially when they are worker-owned co-ops. Gramsci is concerned that consumer co-ops fail to instill socialist class consciousness, yet he recognizes that they are a far better alternative to traditional capitalist organizations. In Gramsci's time, as he mentions in his article, the jury was still out on Wall Street corporations, but we can say today, without question, that Wall Street exacerbates the problems created by capitalism. In contrast, all co-ops, even consumer co-ops, successfully avoid distributing their profits exclusively to the ruling class, the capitalist class. The more money we keep out of the hands of the capitalists, the less money they have to lobby Congress, to get their candidates in office, to invest in anti-union campaigns, or to fund climate change skepticism. But more importantly to democratic socialism, if we are ever to take political power, we will need to be able to take over production for the welfare of society. Not only will this be the case in the long term, but any time capitalism feels threatened. Capitalism has called for a capital strike. Just as workers have the ability to go on strike, capitalists are smart enough to recognize that socialism is an existential threat to their class, and a capital strike is when they strategically stop production until their demands are met. 
Gramsci's Turin experienced capital strikes firsthand in 1920, which we will eventually discuss. In America, we have had capital strikes when capitalists attempted to fight the New Deal, and in 1978 in Cleveland, when banks refused to lend to the city in order to force it to sell its public electricity utility. We saw Uber and Lyft threaten leaving California when the state passed a law that forced the companies to recognize their drivers as employees of the companies. By qualifying as employees, Uber and Lyft would have been responsible for all of the benefits, minimum wage, and pro-worker regulations for which employers in the state are obligated to pay, which would have cost them a lot of money. The threat was successful, and California returned the drivers back to independent contractors. If socialists are ever to take power, there is no doubt that the capitalist class would do everything in their power to stop us. We must be realistic. If a small segment of the capitalist class decided to go on strike until their demands were met, it wouldn't take long before the public would turn on the socialists in power. Imagine the socialists won a majority in the House, Senate, and the office of the President of the United States of America. If Amazon, Netflix, and the oil and gas industry quit all operations for a few weeks, the impact to the people would be felt immediately. There would be a lot of pressure on the socialist leaders in office to compromise with the capitalists. In contrast, the more of the economy in the hands of the working class and the fewer billionaires that exist, the better equipped we will be to overcome capitalist resistance. And in the long term, the socialists will have to produce the world's goods and services. Socialists want to see a world in which the working class owns and democratically manages the organizations at the center of production. If democratic socialism is to sustainably hold power, the working class will have to hold power without contest. In order to get there, as in the example of the French Revolution, the working class will have to be prepared to scale up production once it becomes the hegemonic power and takes control of the levers of power. If the vast majority of Americans voted for democratic socialists, the working class would have to be prepared to replace capitalist production with a working class mode of production. Next season, we will go into detail about the Russian Revolution. Socialist production was one of the key problems the Bolsheviks faced. Gramsci's article. In the last episode, Gramsci said the struggle is primarily economic, not political. This article is primarily about an economics that better serves the interests of the working class. If economics is fundamentally about production and distribution of goods and services, Gramsci says Marxism is primarily concerned with the production side. It is production that, under capitalism, creates a class of business owners that live parasitically off of the labor of the other, the working class. In fact, Gramsci believes the capitalist class are an obstacle to maximizing humanity's capacity to produce. Under socialism, where the workers owned the means of production, they would be freed 
to accelerate production. I think this is yet to be seen, but it is not unfounded. I am sure we will return to this topic in a later episode. For now, let us discuss Gramsci's example. Under capitalism, if one has access to capital, to money, one can go into business in any industry that they wish. There is no guarantee that these entrepreneurs are very smart or very good at leading an organization. Gramsci fails to respond to the argument that the free market provides this function, filtering out the bad bosses. When bad bosses run their organizations out of business, which they do all the time, uh, then they have to close the organization, which then, of course, allows capitalism to operate more efficiently. Uh, though I presume that Gramsci would argue that capitalism in Italy revealed a shocking similarity between the capitalists and the world of organized crime, which is to say that there was a lot of corruption, so the free market wasn't actually free to drive bad capitalists out of business. Capitalists use their wealth to rig the system and the free market in their favor. The closest capitalism gets to gatekeeping organizational leadership is in the corporation, which was still viewed as an experiment in 1916. Corporations were still in their infancy. The board members and the stakeholders have the authority to hire and fire the organization's CEOs. The CEO is merely an employee, not someone actually profiting off of the organization's profitability. Gramsci in 1916, of course, is not accounting for CEOs getting paid shares in the organization. Gramsci points out the overlap with the corporation model and the cooperative model, and that the corporation helps prove the argument that the capitalist is not an essential element of capitalism. Alternative ownership models can thrive without the capitalist, though Gramsci argues socialists should look to a cooperative model due to its ties to the working class. He distinguishes the cooperative movement from socialism, presumably because the cooperative movement does not educate the working class that the capitalist class is an obstacle to their well-being in the way that workers' unions do. But cooperatives do provide an alternative to the capitalist mode of production, as we have been discussing. Cooperatives could be a piece of the foundation of a socialist economy. Gramsci then distinguishes between the base of the capitalist mode of production and the bourgeois superstructure. He tells the narrative that I described above of the material conditions of banks and industrial production preparing the way for the French Revolution and capitalist ideology, that capitalism could not truly ramp up production until the bourgeoisie was in political power. But once they were in power, they had to ramp up production in order to prove their legitimacy as the hegemonic power. Gramsci analyzes all of this because the cooperative movement could play a comparable role preparing the way for the working class's usurpation of power and the inevitable challenge of fending off the bourgeois counter-reaction. To quote Gramsci, the more consumer organizations of this kind that the proletariat can succeed in creating, the more easily it will be able to get over the terrible crisis which will result when it achieves emancipation.
postscript. If what Gramsci is looking for is a proof of concept or potential path forward for a socialist economy, a socialist mode of production, he is right to esteem worker-owned, consumer-owned, and social cooperatives. In the 20th century, Americans took for granted that a socialist economy was centralized and planned. I have read multiple definitions of socialism as if the goal of socialist liberation was to centralize power in the government. Gramsci's article is evidence that the goal of socialist liberation is to create a society in which production does not centralize power into the hands of a few. Government ownership, also known as public ownership, must take a significant role in almost all real-world socialist futures. But the risk of giving the government too much can be mitigated, first by weakening influence of the capitalist class and its corrupting influence on government. Second, publicly owned utilities and other institutions can be operated with more and less transparency and democracy. Accountability to the people requires more of both. As we dive into the Russian Revolution, I may spend some more time on the topic of public ownership. But today we can identify a few more types of institutions conducive to socialist liberation. As the economy under capitalism is a complex ecosystem, a socialist economy could be equally complex. The key is to produce efficiently in order to meet the needs of one's population. But before listing off any more organizational structures, let me mention a concept that should be central to any socialist society public luxury. Under capitalism, we occasionally get public parks, and there are some cities with public transportation. Under socialism, recreation and infrastructure should be opulent. Privately owned luxury is, of course, a luxury. But public luxury could develop deep loyalties in publicly funded community-enriching resources. Luxury public swimming pools Luxury public theaters, luxury public art galleries and museums, luxury public libraries, luxury public high-speed trains, even luxury public laundromats. Something that is luxurious, but shared by thousands and millions of people, has an incredible return on investment when measuring the quality of life available to a community. The cost per person becomes minuscule. Capitalist economics focuses on a certain kind of efficiency. In the spirit of Gramsci, one can find many examples where capitalist efficiency optimizes based on certain priorities. If we propose alternative priorities, we can find far more efficient uses of our funds. As we have already discussed in this podcast, unions also play a central role to socialism. Though they do not truly overcome the central problem, of capitalism, a topic which will become central to Gramsci's life eventually. The collective action of unions empower the working class and bring democracy to the workplace and consequently the economy. At the national level, unions can coordinate strikes with social movements in order to put pressure on the capitalist class and Congress to implement policies favorable to the working class. Up to this point, we have talked about organizations, but other factors would inevitably play a role in the socialist economy. One of the best examples of this would be 
patent laws and property rights around what are known as non-scarce resources. Most economic theory is based around scarce resources. Land, food, natural resources, and money are all scarce resources. Even if we have a lot of dirt and have the capacity to go get our own dirt somewhere else, there is a limit to how much dirt there is in the world, and dirt always takes a quantity of labor in order to acquire it. The price of dirt is predominantly set by the cost of that labor, and how limited the access to quality dirt is. Most scarce resources function in this way. But non-scarce resources are practically infinite. If you have never heard of non-scarce resources before, you may have no idea what I'm talking about. How can there be an infinite amount of a good or a service? The best example is digital content or instructions, known as code. Once a developer writes an application that performs a service, the code can be copied an infinite number of times. The labor that goes into writing the code, divided by infinity, is effectively zero. In 2020, Microsoft's net income was $44 billion. Much of their profits came from selling copies of software, or even worse, selling access to the same cloud-based software. Admittedly, they pay for warehouses and electricity in which the servers reside, and pay staff to maintain the hardware and software, write software updates, etc. But the business model of tech companies, more and more, is to sell licenses to access to their software. The licenses often cost thousands of dollars a year, at least for businesses, sometimes even hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, not to mention the amount they charge per megabyte of storage or download. The point is that software is a non-scarce resource. Once Microsoft's employees write a piece of code, the labor has been spent, yet the same piece of code can be sold in one form or another an infinite number of times. There are always hidden costs like the costs of the land, hardware, and electricity of the servers, but you get the point. This is entirely different than scarce resources. The same applies for digital content. Photos, books, and podcasts can be copied an infinite number of times. All of this is possible because of intellectual property rights. One of the more corrupt elements of modern capitalism is in the domain of intellectual property rights. Those in power want to stay in power, so they lobby Congress to, for intellectual property rights, even international intellectual property rights, that protect their interests. Of course, this is the topic of a podcast episode entirely of its own. So what could socialist intellectual property rights look like? They could be designed to ensure the original creators are compensated for their labor and creative inspiration while making sure the consumers are not arbitrarily gouged. The example of libraries is perhaps the best place to start. Historically, libraries have lent scarce resources to the public. Patrons check out a book or a DVD for a limited amount of time. When they return the item, it is then available for someone else to check out. Intellectual property rights have made it so that libraries must treat digital books as if they were physical. But they're not physical. Digital copies of a book don't break down after being checked out 50 times. They will not wear out. 
nor is there any reason in the world to restrict how many copies of a digital book is checked out at any one time. Server performance is the only reason to limit how many people download a book at a time. Yet intellectual property rights force libraries to pay to replace their digital books after they have been checked out a certain number of times, and sometimes they limit how many copies are checked out at a time. I am sure there are other licensing structures by which libraries can purchase digital content, but again, you get the point. A far more efficient model would ensure the authors, publishers, and distributors are adequately compensated while maximizing the benefits to the customers of non-scarce resources. One other form in which intellectual property rights could empower the working class. Right now, Amazon is the largest online retailer. Their website allows vendors to sell products through Amazon, but as Amazon customers buy non-Amazon products, Amazon collects data on who is buying what at what price, giving them the data they need in order to expand into these markets. This data, which they keep securely hidden, gives them a competitive edge. But what if Amazon was forced to anonymize and publish their data? Who says they have a right to keep it to themselves? We are the ones doing the labor of clicking. Amazon's history of transactions could be an incredible resource for the rest of the economy and for humanity. If that data were available, what could be learned? Imagine what we could learn if Facebook and Google anonymized and published their data for the common good. Currently, we think of this as an unintended consequence of people just buying things, but we could think of it as crowdsourcing. On that note, let us talk about Wikipedia and other forms of crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing decentralizes the creation of content and other goods. You may have noticed that I rely heavily on Wikipedia for my research. It is an incredible resource, and it is quote-unquote free. Wikipedia does rely on donations, but once their overhead is covered, their content is available to everyone with access to the internet. Previously, encyclopedias were an investment for a family that were quickly out of date, not to mention the fact that they often reflected a bias. Wikipedia is not perfect, but it gets people from all ends of the ideological spectrum to collaborate. It is an experiment that has been, from my naive perspective, surprisingly successful, and it is almost entirely a result of unpaid labor. The scope and the quality of Wikipedia is far beyond what traditional capitalist organizations have ever accomplished. Crowdsourcing allows humanity to contribute to the welfare of the community. Many things cannot be crowdsourced, but most likely, we have barely tapped the potential of this form of production. Waze uses its customers' GPS data to identify where traffic is moving faster or slower in order to determine the fastest route for its users, even updating one's route in real time, compensating for changing conditions. And like with Wikipedia, some customers go out of their way to let Waze know when and where they see a car crash or road construction. This helps the thousands or millions of other users. This is an excellent example of how data can be anonymized and used to help society make informed decisions. Waze is now owned by Google, but their historical data could be anonymized and made available to the public to be used by civil engineers to help find ways to mitigate climate change and other problems humanity faces. 
The question, then, is how can we begin testing socialist intellectual property rights right now, experimenting with different models so we can scale them up when socialists move into power? How can we create a socialist mode of production out of the germ that exists in today's capitalist society? In the past, many socialists believed the only alternative to capitalism's controlled chaos was a planned economy. This is a much bigger discussion, but I take for granted that socialism must create a more diverse, more complicated economy than capitalism, not less. Gramsci was right to recognize that cooperatives could play a significant role in a socialist economy, but today we should be experimenting with everything we can get our hands on. These are the problems to be solved by a working class intelligentsia. Thank you everyone for listening to the Working Class Intelligentsia. Email me at theworkingclassintelligentsia at gmail.com.